Let's start making our way back to our chairs. The psalmist says in Psalm 20 that some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Church family, I am excited to open God's word with you as we unpack from the Bible a very familiar story. Before I get to this story, I want to Talk about ways the story is treaded throughout history. We all love the story of an underdog, don't we? You guys with me on this? I think of one of the great underdog stories to be in the the sports world, that is, to be in Super Bowl 42. If you're a Super Bowl fan, you may be aware of this. When the undefeated New England Patriots took on the very weak New York Giants. You guys remember this? The Patriots were arguably the best team in the history of the National Football League. They had won 16 games in the regular season, lost none, had won their playoff games, and now we're in the championship against a team who barely got into the playoffs. They were up 14 to 10 with two and a half minutes left in the game when a very unsuspecting quarterback for the New York Giants marched his team down the field to score the game-winning touchdown, and the New York Giants took out the New England Patriots 17-14. to I'm not a Patriots fan, so I love that game. Yeah. It was a, a David and Goliath kind of story. The, the Patriots weren't supposed to lose at all, let alone to the David-like Gi- uh, New York Giants. Ironically named the Giants, but they're the Davids. Another underdog story. When Mr. Rocky Balboa took on Ivan Drago, a man who was bred to fight and destroy people like Apollo Creed. And you guys love Rocky IV, don't you? At least those of you who have seen it, you've got to love it. Rocky takes him out. That's not a spoiler. If you don't know, that's your fault. Or how about in 1980, when the United States American hockey, the American hockey team went in to face the Soviet Union, who had won some, I think, five out of the previous six gold medals in Olympic hockey. They had professional hockey players playing for their team, while the Americans had amateur hockey players. The, the, the NHL players weren't in uh, the Olympics at that time. And these amateurs had heart. And they went in and ended up defeating the Soviet Union 4-3 to three in what has become known as the miracle on ice. Yet another David and Goliath story. Or how about when this small company by the name of Netflix had it in their dreams to take out the Goliath blockbuster? Most of you don't even know what I just said. <laughs> Talk about successfulness. Or one of my favorite David and Goliath stories, and when my brother was walking home from school, and I was with him, and this neighborhood bully started shouting and jeering at him. My brother's not in the room, I don't think, at the moment, so I'm definitely going to lay into this story real good. <laughs> and this kid, as I remember walking with my brother and a couple of his friends, this guy was known to kind of be the bully, to pick on people, and he just yelled out, look, it's the nerd herd. And my brother's pretty quick with his mouth. He says, yeah, and you're the leader of it. 
And then the guy got up in his face, and then something came over my brother I've never seen happen before or ever since. Let's just say that David took out Goliath. History is full of David and Goliath stories. Stories where the underdog defeats the one who is more powerful and more greater. Where the one who is the warrior loses to the one who you don't expect to defeat him. I think as I look back over history, there have been many of these kind of stories. But my favorite David and Goliath story takes place in the year 985 B.C., when a guy named David took out a guy named Goliath. You see, the story of David and Goliath has become so much of a language thing in our culture, it's almost seemingly mythical. It's, it's folklore or fairy tale for some. It's the stuff that dreams are made of. And many of us know what the image paints, a small one against a big one, And we might say, we're familiar with the story, but do we really know the story? Do we really know the story of David and Goliath? Maybe we've got our information because we haven't, maybe we haven't read it in the Bible. We've we've seen documentaries on David and Goliath. Or we watched the movie, The Bible, and got something about David and Goliath. Or maybe you got your info from VeggieTales when the cucumber gets defeated. But what really happened in the story of David and Goliath? Like, like, why did Goliath want to fight him to begin with? Where were they at, by the way? What did Goliath say that got David so mad? And David, what was he doing at the battlefield if he was just a teenager? And what gave David this idea that he could actually fight this war machine? And then who gave David permission to actually do it? Like, where was the parents at? And then ultimately, why is this story even in the Bible? I want to tell you something. This principle is true, but that's not what this story is about. The principle is true that God will work in and through us to defeat the giants in our life. True principle. That's not this story. Yes, you could pull it out, but the story is so much more than that. There is something happening in the story of David and Goliath that gets lost in the ways it is retold in our day. And the only way to recover and preserve what it's really meant to say is by getting in the story itself. Because in this story, what we find is there to be a competition, not between two men, but between two worlds. One world where Yahweh is the great God of all, and another world where the gods of the Philistines were supreme. The story of David and Goliath is a story of God and his passion for his name and the courage he gives for people to have a like-minded kind of passion for him. The kind of passion that causes us to face even the greatest of foes because God's name is at stake. That's the story of David and Goliath. It's the kind of story that causes you and I to become more bold about what we believe. It's the kind of story and truth that causes our high schoolers to bring their Bibles to school. 
no matter what the repercussions. It's the kind of story that causes us to speak up about our faith in the workplace, to hold on to our integrity when it's put up to the test because God's name is at stake. It's the kind of story that gives you and I what what we need. We're going to make it through this world. And it's the kind of story I hope you want to turn to right now. Are you with me? Would you meet me in the book of 1 Samuel chapter 17? 1 Samuel chapter 17, and we're going to find out about a giant problem that faces David. In your chair in front of you, there is a blue Bible. Meet me on page 239 there. And would you rise to your feet as I read the opening verses to this grand story? I'm going to read the first 11 verses, and I'll end up telling much of the rest of the story after that. But I want us all to just kind of hear what's going on here. To me, I get excited talking about this. I'm not going to lie. Because I love, in particular, preaching stories that are familiar that I know most people haven't read themselves. Because what you're going to find are details and facts. You're like, I didn't know I was there. I didn't know that was there. And so even as I read here, listen for the details of this age-old true story that God has for us. 1 Samuel 17, verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Ezekah in Ephesdamim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah, and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And then verse 4. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion. Can you say champion? Champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam. And his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, and this is what Goliath said. Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. And in verse 11, when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Father, we just come before you, Lord, and I pray that you would uh, speak through me. Lord, that's my humble prayer week in and week out from this pulpit. God, I'm but a vessel, but an instrument, but your word endures forever. 
I will die, but your word won't. I will wither, but your word won't. And so, Father, I pray that it's your word that is clear in our ears. Give us those ears that are able to hear. Give us those kinds of eyes that are able to see. Lord, speak through me and speak to us for the sake of your glory, for the sake of your name, for the good of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated, family. Goliath was Ivan Drago before Drago. Goliath was a warrior of warriors. We're told in the passage I just read that basically there are two mountains at the borders in the land of Judah. And what we find is the people of the Philistines, uh, Goliath's home nation, were trying to recover land or gain land that was held by God's people Israel. And so they drew battle lines on this mountain, and God's people were on another mountain and a valley between them. The valleys where the battles often took place. And the ways ancient warfare took place oftentimes is that a great warrior would stand in that valley, shout all kinds of things, do a bunch of taunting, like that, like that star athlete on, on the field who's mocking the other team, trying to intimidate them. Say, come down, can you really take us on? And then a battle would ensue. And usually the winner of that one-on-one battle would say something about the rest of the armies because they knew they always brought their best man forward. So if their best man fell, it would create kind of fear in the rest of the army. And in this case, the Philistines were quite confident that they had the best man. We're, said, we're given these details. We're told about Goliath in verse 4 that he was a champion. You don't become a champion by birthright. You don't become a champion by mere experience. You become a champion because of victories. Goliath was an undisputed, likely undefeated champion. He was a warrior. He was the kind of person that caused others to shake in their boots. He was crafted to destroy. And if that sounds extreme, take a look at the details told about Goliath here. His height was six cubits and a span. A cubit was 18 inches. So six cubits then are nine feet. But he's not just nine feet. He's nine feet and a span, which is the thought of nine and a half feet. This dude's head could almost touch a basketball rim. But, you know, if you're a basketball fan, you know there have come and gone many tall basketball players. But usually the taller they are, the more lanky they become. I think of this great, play, or this great, this great tall guy named Manute Bowl, who was a basketball player, seven feet seven. But the guy was a twig. He was not very effective because people could just move him around. So what kind of ninth and a half footer was Goliath? Well, look what it says here in verse 5. He had a helmet of bronze on his head. Okay, that's got some weight to it. So he's got a strong neck. He was armed with a coat of mail. Mail are these layered kind of um, uh, scales that you might have seen in military campaigns. He wore this, this coat above, on him with this armor. But again, you think, okay, what would that weigh? Well, we're told here 
It weighed 5,000 shekels of bronze, and that computes to 125 pounds. The guy's armor was 125 pounds. I'm curious what David weighed. So this is not just some tall, lanky, nine-and-a-half-footer. This is a champion with a heavy helmet and 125-pound armor about him. And if that weren't enough, look at what the other details were given here. In verse 6, he had bronze armor on his legs. And he had a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. He wore that on his back, a javelin of bronze. But that's his backup weapon because it's on his back. So what did he have in his hands? Well, in verse 7, he had a spear. The shaft of the spear was like a weaver's beam, which was a heavy, long device. And the very head of the spear, we're told, weighed 15 pounds. I mean, just think about that. The head of the spear. Spears you take, you thrust, you throw. I don't know. I've never tried to throw a 15-pound weight. Even if I could, it wouldn't be accurate. And even if I could, I couldn't hit someone more than five feet away from me. Goliath is a man, a man among boys when standing with other warriors. This man was strong. We're told later on that he also had a sword like no other. Spear in one hand, sword in the other, javelin on his back, a 125-pound coat, bronze helmet, bronze leg pads. But to make matters worse, he also had a shield. And you're like, how does he have a shield if he's got these, uh, these uh, weapons in his hands? Well, we're told he had a shield bearer in verse 7. So he had someone standing in front of him carrying his own shield. Goliath was stepping onto the battlefield with no intention of losing. The reason for that is he never lost before. He's a champion. He's a warrior. And no surprise, when he shouts at Israel's army, send a man to fight me, what does it tell us in verse 11? It said that everyone there was dismayed and greatly afraid, and included in that number is the king of Israel, Saul. You see, Goliath makes his point very clear. You see there in verse 10, he says, I defy the ranks of Israel. I defy, I'm taunting you guys. I am making nothing of your military right now. And so now the stage is set for this story. This is not just a big warrior. This is the warrior of warriors. And then in verse 12, the story goes back to this guy named David, who likely at this point is a teenager, a youth. We're told in verse 12, that David, we're reminded again, he's from a town called Bethlehem, and his dad's name is Jesse, and he's got three brothers, Eliab, Abinadab, and Shema. His three older brothers were of age for war, so they were actually at the battlefield. And his dad told David to go meet his brothers, bring them food, and then he tells David, go get a token from them and bring it back to me. Basically, his dad's saying, hey, when you go there, come, when you come back, make sure you have something that signifies that your brother is still alive. I want to know how they're doing. So David would make this 15-mile journey from Bethlehem to this valley often, 
going back and forth at different times with gifts from his dad and food and other supplies. We're told in verse 19 and following that David then goes to the battle lines to talk with his brothers. And while he is there, he sees Goliath come out one of these times because it says Goliath did this for 40 days. It's a long time. It's over a month. No one's stepping up to fight him. And we're told that David heard Goliath make these statements. What we're going to find is something in King David, or anointed David, not yet king. We're going to see a kind of courage and passion about this young man that you and I ought to long for. We're going to see something here in a moment, and we're going to understand why David faced Goliath. This is not just some youth who wants to prove to everyone else that he's strong. This is not just some guy who has his ego trip or sees this opportunity to get a trophy for his trophy case. There is something substantive about David that often gets missed here. And it actually got missed on his own brothers because he began to ask, and his oldest brother Eliab had a problem with it. Now you might remember in the previous chapter, and I shared with you guys last Sunday, that when David was anointed to be king, he's the youngest of all his brothers. Eliab is the oldest brother, the one you would expect to be the king. He's the oldest. He was the strongest. He was the tallest. He was the, 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 the one who you would expect. But God told Samuel at the time, look, I don't look at people's outward appearance. I look at their heart, and I have not chosen Eliab. Well, what was it about Eliab? What do we learn about his heart? Let's take a look at verse 28. Now, Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke, when David spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, why have you come down? With whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? That was David's occupation for his dad. And then Eliab says this about David. I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. He's like, little brother, you just come to see a fight. Now, let's be honest. We all like watching a fight sometimes, don't we? All right, so on the one hand, I'm like, hey, I can't blame David if he's there to see a fight. You know, that's in us. But it's interesting that Eliab tries to reveal his brother's heart and in so doing exposes his own. He's jealous. He's bothered by his brother. That his brother would come to the battle lines and actually say some courageous things. What does David do? What does David do that that makes this so compelling of a story? Well, the first thing I want us to understand in David's boldness here is that David saw a spiritual message behind the physical challenge here. Family, I want us to be these kinds of people. The kind of people that see when God's name is being challenged in our culture and in our communities. Look at here. In verse verse 26, David is there hearing Goliath speak. And he asks the question, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? We found out earlier that what would be done is that Saul, the king, would give him his daughter. The king is ready to make whoever slays Goliath part of the royal family. So David asks the question, but then he says, For who is this uncircumcised Philistine 
that he should defy the armies of the living God. You see what he did there? I'm going to read this again. What shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? David takes a physical reality, a physical challenge, a military campaign, and he puts a spiritual twist on it. And some of you are like, hey, David, you're, you're overreacting. Don't spiritualize this. These are two nations trying to fight right now, all right? But remember what Goliath said? He says, I defy the ranks of Israel. Now get this, family. Who fought for Israel? Throughout all of Israel's history, who fought their battles? When they were in Egypt as slaves, who got them out of there? Did they even lift up a sword? Did they even kill one person by their own strength of the most powerful nation in the world? No. How does Pharaoh end up in the bottom of the sea? God fought for him. And when they got into the promised land and Joshua goes to Jericho, what do they do in Jericho? Do they pull out their ballistic cannons? Do they get their siege machinery? How do they knock down Jericho? They march. Because who fought their battle? Who fought Israel's battle? You see, when Goliath said, I defy the ranks of Israel, David's like, no, 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 no. This is not about people and swords and shields. This is a challenge and an affront against my God. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine, he asks, who would defy the armies of the living God? Notice the name he gives to God. The living God. Hayim Elohim in Hebrew. The God who lives. Look, David's like, look, my God is not just a God who got us out of Egypt and got us into this promised land. He's still living. He is still alive and he still works. And David is there bothered by it reproach, he says, has come upon God's people, and no one here is doing anything about it. Not even our king. See, this story is not just to show how this young man was bold, but it shows something about this young man's faith. It also shows something about this king's cowardice. You see, family, A lot of times we see things through the lens of the physical. We miss the spiritual realities taking place behind it. When we find ourselves in a nation that is engrossed in materialism, don't just get consumed with what's physical and money, but what's behind that? What are the spiritual realities that the enemies of God are using in that? Where is our trust when we are priding ourselves in our materials? not in God. God is being defied. When our nation is greedy, when Christianity is being deemed as intolerant, when manhood and womanhood are being redefined and marriage redefined, when Satan is there trying to line up Christianity with political parties, that's not from God, family. There are spiritual things at place One of the things that I'm going to be very honest here that grieves me so much is when a particular political party, and I'm just going to say when the Republican Party says that evangelical Christianity is with it. No, family. We are with Jesus, our King. 
There are no political parties that represent God, family. We just got to smell that out. Because what's happening here? God's ways are being challenged. God's truth is being challenged. God's creation is being challenged. And I see this in our nation. The church is being challenged because the church is not about politics. Yes, we use political things. Yes, we advocate for justice. Yes, yes, and yes. But we're the church. We're not politicians first and foremost. We need politicians who are in the church. See, family, we've got to see the physical world and not just say what's happening there, but saying what's going beneath it. What if God's plans are being questioned? What if God's good truths are being challenged? Look, God has a standard because it's good and right. And when we deviate from it, we are walking a dangerous place, fam. David saw this here clearly. David's like, who defies the armies of God? And no one speaks up. Not only does David possess faith that you and I need to do in seeing the physical, seeing the spiritual truth behind the physical, but secondly, David understood that God prepared him for that moment. This, this is remarkable. Because word got around that David was talking like this. And so the king is like, hey, bring this young man over here. Look in verse 31. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before, the, before Saul the king, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with the Philistines. And I'm sure Saul's like, mm-hmm. <laughs> like, you, kid? I got your three brothers here in my army who are bigger and stronger than you. And, and what's the deal here? Saul said to David, you are not able to go with this Philistine to fight with him. For you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. Like, like you're at the age he was when he first started doing this. And he's in verse 34. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him, and I struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. This is a kid with some fire here. But look at verse 36. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. Why? For he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the paw of this Philistine. I love what Saul says. What did he say there? Go right ahead, kid. Hey, man, go for it. Now look at this. I love what David does here. Because I wonder what David thought when he was out with his sheep and he saw a lion. And it took one of the sheep away, and he had to fight it off. And a week later, a bear came along. You know what I would do? Like, God, for real? Like, really, God, twice, three times? This is what we do when we face things in our lives that we don't want to have happen to us. A lot of times we're like, God, really? Is this really happening right now? 
Why am I going through this? But what David understood was those things are preparation for future things. David understood that what he went through with the lion and the bear was God saying, hey, I'm forming you then to use you now. Some of you are right now in the middle of the lion and bear kind of stuff where you're like, God, really is this happening? And you must understand that in order to be bold like David, you must understand in the now that God is doing something today. And he intends to use what you're going through today for his glory later. And some of you are at the other side of the spectrum where you're looking back and saying, yes, I know that's true because five years ago I went through dot, dot, dot. But today God's using it to bring his name glory. I'll tell you he does that. If you're at that tail end, you need to testify about that. You need to speak up to someone who's in the mess today and let them know, hey, God will redeem it. That pain you're going through, that pressure, your passion, those things, God will use it. David is here possessing boldness because he understood that God had prepared him for now. So whether you're being prepared for later or yesterday prepared you for today, know that God will use you. That's the second thing we see in this young man. The third thing we realize is that David trusts God's weaponry. And God's weaponry emboldens his servants. So what does David do? Or better yet, what does Saul do? Verse 38 and following, Saul's like, all right, David, you're going to go fight this giant. Here's my armor. It's the king's armor. There's nothing like it in Israel. The king wouldn't want to use it, but you could use it. David puts it on, and it says he, he didn't like it because he had not tried it out. David's like, this is, this, this is, this is kind of worldly wisdom right now, trying to do a spiritual thing here. This, this is, these are things that people think I should do, but that's not the way God's going to do it. Because if I win this battle, you know who's going to get the credit? Your armor, Saul. Your armor's going to get the credit. But who deserves this credit in the battle? God does. So what does David do? He goes to a brook. And he gets five stones out of a brook and takes a stick with him. That's what he goes. Sticks and stones to break his bones. He grabs his sling in verse 40 and he goes toward Goliath. The Philistine, it says, moved forward and came near David in verse 41 with his shield bearer in front of him. That's cheating though, isn't that? You got this great warrior, and he's got a shield bearer. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy, and handsome in appearance. You know, you just sent me a pretty boy. You know, like, that works in Hollywood. That don't work in the Valley of Elah. And the Philistine, verse 43, said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? That's actually a pretty creative line, isn't it? Like, you're going to play fetch with me here? I mean, like, sticks? Do you not see this javelin slung between my shoulders? Don't you see this sword in my one hand and spear with a 14, 15-pound head on the other hand? Don't you see who I am? The first thing cursed David, but notice this, by what? Who is this? The Philistine cursed David by his gods. 
You see, what gets lost oftentimes is that we miss that this is not a battle between two men, but two worlds. One in which Goliath thinks his gods reign, and one in which David thinks his God reigns. Who's going to win this battle? This is the story here. And a Philistine said to David, come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. This is enough to cause anybody to panic. But not David, because David said to the Philistine in verse 45, you come to me with a sword, with a spear, and with a javelin. But I, contrast, come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. And David says, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. That didn't happen in Veggie Tales, by the way. <laughs> and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth. I love what David does, does there. You come to me with these things, and I come to you in this thing. The word with and in in Hebrew are the same exact words, and you know how to translate them depending on context. And every English translation translates it this way because it's the way you do it. Goliath came with weapons. David didn't come with his weapons. He came in the name of his weapon. See, family, when you come with something to the battle, you trust in what you came with. But you come in the authority and in the name of another, you trust in that one. David came and trusted in the name of the Lord, not with his weapons. David here understands what's about to take place. And David himself ended up penning the words in Psalm 20. Some trust in chariots and some in horses. You could add sword, spear, and javelin in there. But we trust in the name of the Lord of hosts. Psalm 20 verse 8 says, They collapse and fall but we rise and stand upright. There is one who is about to collapse and fall, and there is one who is about to stand upright. Verse, uh, before I get there, before I get there, David understood what he was going into battle with. His weaponry emboldened him. You see, family, when we come into the spiritual battles we face, and our trust is in our strategies, in our education, in our experience, and you go down the list, you're trusting with something, not in someone. On the other hand, when you understand God's weaponry is his very name, and when we call upon his name through prayer, and we lean upon his name in faith, that emboldens us for the fight. So when our faith is being challenged at the workplace or at school or on the block, you are emboldened in, because in whom you trust, not with what you trust in. David was bold because he saw the spiritual reality behind the physical challenge. Secondly, he was bold because he realized God prepared him for this moment. Thirdly, he was bold because he understood God's weaponry. And fourthly, his boldness came because it was God's fame that was his priority. David wasn't concerned about himself at this moment. He went into this battle not caring what happened to himself because he cared more about God's name. Remember he says, who is this Philistine who brings reproach on God and his people? 
That, that's what he cared about at the end of the day. When we care most about God's name, we will say what needs to be said. We will do what needs to get done because we don't matter. It doesn't mind us or matter to us so much what happens to us, but it matters more who we're doing it for. And so what does David do? He tells Goliath that I'm about to do what I'm about to do so that in verse there in verse 46, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Goliath, I want you to understand something. When your God stands toe-to-toe with mine, all the earth will know that my God is the real one. Not only that, in verse 47, but also so that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with a sword and spear. Which assembly? He says, I'm doing this so that the world may know that my God is the real God, and I'm doing this so that this assembly can know that God saves, not with a sword or spear. But which assembly is he talking about? Who is this people groups he speaks of? It could be Goliath's military, but I believe it's the people behind him who are shaking in their boots. It's like David is saying, Israel, you got to understand something. Our God saves. And he doesn't do so with sword and spear. But watch how he does it. Verse 48, when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. He was anxious to get this done with. He's like, I got no time to waste. I'm not walking to the battle. I'm not even going to trot to it. In fact, there's several times in the story we find that David is running. He lives like a man who's got a mission. He runs to the battlefield to bring food to his brothers. He runs to Goliath because he's got a, a fight to fight. Family, we've got to walk with urgency here. We've got to run with urgency. We've got to be the kind of people that walk about as if God was going to use us and do something. Verse 49, David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it. Now look, I told you about Goliath's armor. What's, exp- what's he going to hit? The shield? His 125-pound coat, his bronze helmet, there's one spot that David could hit that would make it matter at all to Goliath. There's only one place on Goliath that is exposed enough to do damage to him at that distance. Where's that? Between the eyes. David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone, and struck the Philistine and killed him. Now, there was no sword in the hand of David. David's like, okay, this guy's on the ground. What am I going to do? So what does he do? He says, then David ran again and stood over the Philistine and took his own sword and drew it out of his sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled, and God's people chased after them. Boy, oh boy. The same people who were shaking in their boots seconds earlier are now chasing away an army. Where did their boldness come from? Where did the other people find strength? But when they saw someone stand up for God, and they saw God deliver them, and then it emboldened them. Look, courage is contagious, family. 
Courage matters. When you stand up, watch how that moves in other people. This is what I loved about Bring Your Bible to School Day. Because when other students say, hey, this is what I'm doing, it emboldened others. When you see people standing up for the name of Jesus, let that embolden you. When you hear of your brothers and sisters across the world being killed for their faith, let that embolden you here where you have freedom. God's people chased them down. David had boldness because he understood the spiritual realities behind the physical truths. David had boldness because he knew God prepared him for that moment. David was bold because he understood God's weaponry is God's name himself. David was bold because ultimately it was about God and his fame and not David and his fame. This is not a mere fairy tale, folklore, or seemingly mythical story. This is something greater than a football team upsetting the favorites a small business beating out the blockbusters. In some ways, when we compare something to a David and Goliath, we realize nothing compares. Because this is a story of God showing off his power and his might through someone like David. The very things he would do through you and I. What I love, family, ever since God chose his people Israel, put his name on them. He has fought their battles. When they trusted in him, he always has come through. When Israel fell, it's because they were trusting in horses and chariots and kings. But when they said, God, upon you we trust, truly, God comes through. And family, he's done that for all of us. Having fought the greatest fight and battle, we needed him to fight for us. Because just like Goliath knocked at the doorsteps, bringing and symbolizing death for the armies, death has knocked on our doorsteps. But not just in theory, but in reality. Not just physical death, but the spiritual one underlining it. You see, from our birth, we have all been born separated from God. We have a foe, an enemy, and it's called sin. And the Bible says that the penalty of sin is death. Therefore, we stand facing Goliath with no way to find victory against it. But the story of the Bible is a story of God stepping in when we could do nothing to fight for ourselves. And we find some thousand years later after this story, Jesus, the son of David, would fight the greatest fight and battle for all of us. He would take on death and sin who mocked God. He would take on Satan who would want to quench God's plans. And Jesus would go to the cross and take your sin and my sin. Take your shame and my shame. Take your guilt and my guilt. Take the death that you deserved and he died it for you. He fought the battle you couldn't fight. And even still, we can look at the cross and say, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but I trust in the name of the Lord my God who took on my greatest foe of them all. Jesus, I praise you. And that is the great mystery of the Bible, the great irony. Talk about a David and Goliath, that through death God would give life. That doesn't make sense. 
You're not supposed to get life by dying. But in God's economy, that's just what he did. Life wins by death, and death is put to death in that moment. You come today, and you are yet to be a child of God. I want you to know that you stand as an enemy of God if you've never put your faith in Jesus, and that you have a foe that's before you, and it's called sin and death, and God God wants to deliver you from that enemy. And he calls you to put your faith in Jesus. Say, Jesus, I believe that you died for my sins. You took the punishment I deserved. And that you had victory over the grave when you rose on the third day. And I'm turning away from my sin. That's called repentance. And I'm turning to you. That's faith in Jesus. And when you do that, when you pray that in your heart of hearts, you become part of God's family. You are now numbered among his armies. And you've been given eternal life. We pray that for you. If you are a child of God today, family, let's walk with boldness. Let's remember that God is preparing you for these battles. Let's remember that our trust is in his name. And let's do all that we do for his glory.